Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll spend some time in the book of Proverbs. So let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for, once again, everything that you have given us uh, in your sovereignty. And we just ask that as we um, look at your word, that your spirit would be moving in our heart, that you would be causing us to see our own sinfulness, and that your spirit would be working to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we think about these things and think about these truths, that we would stay focused on your word and focused on the things that are found in your word. Once again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for everything that, uh, that we have in him, and we just thank you for this incredible treasure in him. We say this in your son's name, amen. So, uh, last summer, uh, as you know, I went to Florida during the summer, which was the dumbest move I think I could have made, uh, and I got really burnt. But while we were there, uh, my friend took me to this place, uh, it was this amazing really unique town. It was called The Village. I now know that that is the number one retirement city in the United States. And as we were walking around in this, I don't know, it's not really a village, it's a, it's a city, it's a retirement city. Um, we, were, we were walking down the sidewalk and uh, I I saw a golf cart, and I turned to my friend Jeff, and I said, when did Mercedes-Benz make a golf cart? And I was looking this morning. Uh, I, I can verify that that model starts at 12 Gs. And I thought, wow, I'm trying to buy a car right now for 12 Gs, and that's not even close to how awesome this golf cart is. Maybe I should just buy a golf cart. That would be sweet. I went on the website this morning of the village just to see, and it, it, when you first come on, there's this pop-up screen, and it says, your retirement adventure begins right now. Isn't that nice? And then it showed a whole bunch of pictures of people line dancing, because I guess that's what you do when you retire, you line dance, and there were people playing water polo and line dancing, then there was a restaurant, people line dancing again. Uh, different set of people. There's a guy golfing, line dancing again. A lot of line dancing. And you get the picture as you're looking at all of these snapshots of people, these smiling people, these rich people. You get the picture. This is the portrait of success. You reach the village at the end of your working career. You have made it. You are the success now, I'm not against $12,000 golf carts. If you have one, congratulations. Uh, you have a really expensive golf cart. Uh, I'm not against golf cart. I'm not against restaurants. I'm not against line dancing. I am against the notion that success in life is just that. Like, I, I win. I have a successful life because I can now live here and have these things. I'm against that, because I think life is more than what I have at the end of my life. 
And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that they can take all that stuff with them, right? I mean, we do know the end, right? And we do have the book of Revelation, and we do see that the whole world is going to burn. Even that Mercedes-Benz golf cart will burn as well. So is it really success if you can't take it with you and you just have a couple years of this incredible life? Is that, is that really how we should define success? I think as we're going to look in the book of Proverbs this morning, no, there's more to life than this. There's more to life than just simply having more toys than everyone else, having this awesome retirement package. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 13, verses 18 through 25, we're going to see a snapshot of true success. We're going to see a real definition of success. So turn with me to Proverbs 13. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And this morning, there's really no real outline other than here is a portrait of success, and we're going to look at each verse. And each verse has its own little snapshot. Just imagine that website of all these little snapshots of people smiling, and here's, here's what success looks like. Here's the Proverbs little snapshot of here's the successful life. Verse 18 of Proverbs 13. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. But he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to, the, to fools to turn away from evil. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of sinners is stored up for the righteous. Abundant food is in fallow ground of the poor, but is swept away by injustice. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. So just notice here the first snapshot in verse 18. Notice poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. As we talked about in the book of Proverbs, poverty is, has a little bit more of a meaning than just I don't have anything. Uh, I'm poor. I, I'm destitute. It, 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 it does include that, and often... Uh, Often in the book of Proverbs, not every case, but often poverty is a result of laziness, right? A lazy person does not have because a lazy person does not get up and work. So there there is some aspect to this of not having wealth. But as we've seen in the book of Proverbs, riches and poverty often speaks of a condition of one's soul, okay? So one has a soul that is rich. Their life is rich. It's full of meaning. It's full of fearing the Lord. It's full of investing in people. It it, it has this idea of following God's commandments, and there's this reward and this blessing of being obedient. The, the, The one who's poor would then be the opposite. It's one who does not obey and therefore does not have all of these incredible benefits, right? It would be this idea that their soul is poor. They really have nothing to show. It's a, it's a, it's a shallow life. 
So it could include that they don't have riches, but it, but it also would probably be a little bit more of just this, this life full of distraction, this life full of devastation, this life full of, of sin and the consequences of sin. And with that would also come shame. This isn't necessarily the sense of conviction, like I've done something and I feel shamed about the thing I've done. This most likely refers to shame from the community, right? So a person who neglects discipline will not have a rich, full life, will have a life of poverty, which includes the loss of wealth, and the community at large will will look at that person with shame, okay? And so notice, this person who has poverty and shame, this will come to him, why? Because he neglects discipline. He, he refuses to listen to discipline. He refuses to listen to any biblical counsel, any biblical rebuke, any wise rebuke. He, this person kind of distances himself from it. And he says, I, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. I am right don't change my mind. Don't try to prove me. I am right in my own thinking. And a person who does that, who does not, who is not teachable, will not listen to God's word, what will happen? This poverty and shame will happen. That's, that's what's being said here. But notice what the successful life is in the second part of this proverb. It says, but he who regards reproof will be honored. So on the other hand, there's a group of people who they will listen to the rebukes of the, the Lord. They'll listen to the rebukes of, of God. They'll, they'll listen to wise people. And when wise people say, that's not good, you need to repent. Here's a sinful thing in your life you need to change. The wise person will go, you're right, because God says it, I'm going to repent. God's word says it. I take him serious. When he says that I've sinned, I've sinned. I take it serious. I confess my sins right? I'm forgiven. I repent. I, I, I change. I work on it. That person who matures and listens to reproof and biblical reproof will have honor in the community, will have a good testimony in the community. This is real success, by the way. It's not how much stuff you have at the end. It's whether you have a good testimony. And a good testimony starts with the fundamental premise, I am flawed, I am a sinner, I am in desperate help of God and of his word, and I need to be repenting of my sins, right? I need to be constantly confessing my sins. That is a mark of a successful person who is constantly in God's word, listening to God's word, uh, becoming more and more like Christ as the Spirit works on him. Um, I I was talking to a, a gentleman a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about what I do, and I said, well, I'm, a, I'm an expositor. I like going verse by verse, and one of the reasons I like going verse by verse is because it exposes my sin, and it exposes the fact that I need Jesus more and more, and it makes me less brilliant and Jesus more brilliant, and that's, that's one of the things that I really like about expository preaching, and he, he made this comment. He says, well, I would never read that book that would tell me that I'm wrong. That, that's the mindset of a fool. The mindset of a wise person goes, I already know I have areas where I've sinned. God's word helps me. It reproves. That's success. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. Your testimony counts, and that testimony comes from spending time with God's word, 
doing that work, seeing that sin and repenting of that sin. That's the first snapshot, right? Is somebody repenting. A good testimony. Now notice the second snapshot of the righteous person in verse 19. It says, desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to turn from evil. Kind of an interesting parallelism here. The first part, a person that has desire, and when that comes to pass, right, when that desire is fulfilled, it's sweet to the soul. We as evangelicals do not have a very good concept of desire. And I think some of that comes from the medieval church. We haven't really fully weeded out some of that bad theology from times past. It used to be back in the day that if you desired anything, had any desire, whether it was a legitimate desire or not, that that desire was sin. And there were guys who would, you know, try to show how spiritual they were by denying their needs and their desire. And they said, by me, desi- my, by me denying even the desire itself demonstrates that I'm fighting sin because it demonstrates that I need something. And I don't want to need anything other than the Lord. That, that's a really bad concept. I, I often find that we have needs as creatures, which demonstrates our creatureliness. So think of this. Last night, I needed to go to bed. I had a desire to go to sleep. That's not a bad desire. In fact, that should teach me I am not as awesome as I think I am. Right? I need to stop and rest. Every night, I need to stop and rest. As much as I, as much as I could boast about my power and my strength, there's a limit, and I got to go to bed. And there's a real desire to go to bed, right? There's a real desire to rest. Is that an evil desire? No, that's just, that's just the product of being a creature. Now, I can take that desire and go too far with it, right? I can, I can desire to sleep when I should be working, right? That's outside of God's will. I should sleep at the time when I should be working, right? That's outside of God's timing. He has designated times for us to sleep, right? Normally, that's at night. So... When I think of this, I think the desire to sleep is not bad. And when I get chance to have rest after a good day's work, that is really sweet to the soul. The desire is not evil. It can become evil if I desire to sleep all the time. So think about this then, friends. You and I who, who live this life of faith, we trust the Lord. There are many things many needs, legitimate needs that we have that only the Lord in his timing, when we follow his will, he can fulfill. And when he fulfills it, it is an incredibly sweet fulfillment. Now we can do the opposite. We can have a desire and a need and desire to fulfill that need outside of God's will and outside of his timing. And when we do that, We might get a temporary fix, but that lust never really, truly satisfies, right? Never has. Think about it. Every time you've given in the temptation, did you walk away going, I don't need to do that again? That's great. That's perfect. Never need need to do that one again. No, most of the time, there's this desire for more, for more. Why? Because it wasn't enough. But when the Lord gives us great gifts, isn't it always perfect? And you go, 
This is more than I thought it was. Now, that, that's how a believer kind of looks at this, and that's how we should look at this. It's incredible that we need to wait on God. We need to wait. We need to follow his will and wait on his timing. We have desires. We have needs. Those will be fulfilled, right? But notice, notice how an evil person thinks of this. But it is an abomination. Think of this, an abomination. This is the word that we've used before of those taboo behaviors that, that a righteous person should not do, right? It's an abomination to do that. It's an abomination to steal. It's an abomination to blaspheme. It's something that we look at and we look at in horror going, you can't do that. You can do a lot of other stuff, but you can't do that. That's the sense we have, right? That's what an abomination is. So it is an abomination to fools. So when they're thinking through their life, there are certain taboo behaviors that they have. And what is one of the things that is taboo for them? It is a taboo, terrible wrong to turn away from evil. You see that? That's incredible. That a wicked person says, I'll do a lot of stuff, but I will never turn away from evil. It's kind of like, like that saying that you've probably heard where some people say, what's the best way to fight temptation? Give in to it. That's the idea here. What's the best way to fight it? Just give in. There's no more temptation. I did it. That is their maxim, right? I do as I will, regardless. Now, the question is, how does a fool get to this how does a fool reason his way to this? I, I firmly believe that every temptation is fundamentally a challenge for us to rethink the character of God, to rethink the will of God, and be so self-centered to accomplish and satisfy some desire outside of God's timing. So think, for example, of, of Eve in the garden. Here she is in paradise. God gave her paradise, gave one command, you can eat from every tree except from those trees in the center. What does Satan do when he goes up to tempt Eve? The first question is, did God really say? Questions the will, right? The revealed will of God. Did God really mean this? And then he says, did God say that you really can't eat from any tree? Why say that? To me, it's beginning to sow the seeds to question the character of God. Is God good? Think of it. The, the logic is, did God put you in paradise just to have you look at the trees? And she said, no, God put us in, we can eat from anything except for those. Well, see, God's withholding. He knows that when you eat of that, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. He, he's trying to hold you back. So he's changing the character of God, redefining God's will, and then saying you can accomplish something outside of God's timing. So when I think of a, of a fool who gets to this idea of, I'm going to fall for every temptation, it's because he fundamentally has a bad concept, bad theology of God. It's because he doesn't fully understand the revealed will of God, and he has no concept of the timing of God, that God provides good gifts in his time. He doesn't know God. So why should he listen to someone he doesn't know? That would be his logic. But let's be honest. A successful life is one who has desires and says, I'm going to wait for the Lord to fulfill that desire in his time. And if God never wants to fulfill that desire, oh well. 
he's still God. Right? He's still Lord. He's still in charge. That is, that is a successful life. Trusting in the Lord, looking at God, having a high view of God, reviewing his attributes and thinking of him correctly. Now, there's another one, verse 20. Notice this next snapshot, right? It says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting image here of someone who walks with a bunch of wise men. And that that idea of walking is, is much more than just a casual conversation, just a casual bumping into. Uh, Walking uh, implies closeness, right? You're with someone. It it, it implies that you identify with that group, right? I'm walking with them. I'm identifying with them. It it demonstrates longevity, right? These are long-time close friends. Walking, by the way, uh, requires energy. So it's putting energy into a close relationship for a long period of time. This is demonstrating, uh, or this is talking about someone who has a really close association, friendship, fellowship with someone. This isn't like, this isn't like a, oh, you went somewhere where there was a sinner there. You went to a restaurant and a sinner walked in. Well, now you're going to get all dirtied and fouled up because you were near a fool. That's not, that's not the implication here. The implication is, who I decide to make as my close group of friends that I'm constantly talking to, putting energy into that relationship, right? It's, it's that long-time friends. And, and so the one who says, my long-time friends are going to be people who are wise, and wisdom automatically assumes the fear of the Lord, taking God's word seriously, knowing God, It's saying, I'm going to be around a group of believers. And if I'm around a group of believers who are walking to try to follow the Lord, then the natural inclination is they will influence me to also be godly. You know, I, as I was looking at this, I, at Proverbs 13, 20, I thought, man, this would be a great text for a youth group, Right? Kids growing up need to learn how to make friends, and this would be a great, great thing for them. And then I thought, well, actually, it's a great thing for me, right? Because I don't necessarily always make the wisest friends, right? We still have to make friends. It's not, it's not like the moment we leave high school, it's like, well, you don't have to worry about how you make friends anymore. No, we, we still have relationships. We still are meeting new people. And the question is, how do we know when someone is wise? And those are the type of people that we should be associating with. And as I was thinking about this, I just jotted down a couple things. I, I would say this, and I, I know that what I'm about ready to say actually is quite controversial. So, Greg, sorry, you're going to be getting a whole bunch of emails this week of, you need to silence Pastor Caleb. He, uh, he's saying some crazy stuff. And I'm kind of half-joking. I actually think there are some people who actually would disagree with this, but I would say that the first thing of choosing your friends, the, one of the most important things is that they're wise, namely that they're believers. I think the closest relationships you have in your life should be believers. Now you would say, why is that so controversial? If you listen to sermons of those who are not of our persuasion, there are numerous sermons where they would say, 
Don't get around a holy huddle. Make sure that you have friends of those outside of the church. Now, if what they mean is that we are clicky and we just think we're the best and there's no other Christians outside of this church, the only Christians that have ever existed in the history of the world is right here. Yeah, that's wrong. I don't think that's what this is talking about. That's wrong. We would all say that's wrong. If what they're saying is that we as believers should be winsome and friendly to those we come in contact with, that we shouldn't be, um, we, we shouldn't have bad attitudes and always looking down on those who are outside of Christ saying, I will never talk to someone who never, who, 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 who would, they go to a different church or they don't even go to church at all. I'm never going to talk to them whatsoever. I'm going to avoid them in the supermarket. If that's, if that's your attitude, I would say that is wrong. What I'm talking about is those relationships that you spend long time developing, those whom you hang out with, those who you share burdens with, those people that you fellowship within on a regular basis, the first criteria needs to be at least that they are believers and that you can actually fellowship with them. I would say the second thing, because they're wise, right? Which means wise people think correctly. So they got to think correctly. They got to have sound doctrine. The people that I should spend time with, developing relationships with, should have sound doctrine. And the question is, how do I know who has sound doctrine? I think a great place to start is our church's doctrinal statement. Not saying that we, you start from the church doctrinal statement and that's how you believe. No, we, we studied the Bible. We, we realized that these are the truths. And then we just said, here's the truths of the Bible, right? And this is the sound way, the right kind of right way of thinking. That's a good way to start using the church doctrinal statement to think through this is sound doctrine. And there's plenty of people who have similar doctrine to us and that those are wise people because they think about the Bible correctly. I would also say they think about the world correctly. They have the same mind as you do. They, they realize that there are people out there who don't know Jesus and that the gospel is the most important thing and that they, they want to come and get into your life and encourage you and edify you to grow to become more like Jesus. It's a, primarily a spiritual connection. That's really important for friends. I, I think one of the other things, too, that as you're making friends and developing friends, it kind of goes hand in hand with walking with wise, is this idea of sharing with them, right? Th- this is what I think Solomon has in mind here, of walking with the wise. And we need to realize that the people who we hang out with influence us whether we think that or not we are influenced by the people that we hang out with the most so notice what happens if you choose bad friends right by the way this is successful right to be successful you choose the right friends notice those people that choose the wrong friends uh, it says but the companion of fools will suffer harm yeah if you choose fools as your friends, guess what? It's not going to be a fun time for you. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that they're going to influence you to do. You're going to be acting like a fool. There's going to be situations where you're caught up in. Guess what? You're dealing with a whole bunch of tomfoolery. You're dealing with a whole bunch of sin. You're going to be caught up in some really weird and awkward circumstances that will cause harm to you, harm to your soul. A successful person chooses the right friends. As believers, we choose godly friends. We walk with godly people. 
right? Because we want to be more like Jesus. And we want to be around people who are striving to be more like Jesus. And as we're striving together to be more like Jesus, guess what? We're encouraged to live more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's a successful person. Let's look at another snapshot. Notice in verse 21. It says, Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. Uh, this word for pursues is an interesting word here in verse 21. Uh, right? So uh, adversity would speak of any type of calamity, right? Any type of bad thing that happens, right? It, it, would, be, it would be nine times out of ten because it's associated with a sinner. It, it's dealing with the true consequences of their sin. So the idea is adversity pursues those who do not listen to God's law. It, it, it's like a lion chasing a gazelle. That's the word that's used here, pursues. It's like a guy who's skiing down a hill with an avalanche coming after him. It's pursuing him. And with a sinner who's not concerned about God's law, is willing to lie, cheat, hurt people, be a bad employee, do all sorts of shady shenanigans, you can imagine that as he continues to live life, he continues to accumulate for himself more things which are chasing after him. So it's like, the, it's like the gazelle that's running away from the lion only to run into another lion, then to only then run into another lion, then to run in the middle of the pride saying, I could beat them all. That's the idea here. So adversity follows the sinner. It eventually will catch up to you. If you are a sinner and you don't turn to Jesus Christ, there is no repentance. It will catch up to you and the consequences will be terrible. There will be hell to pay. But let's even be honest as believers. As believers, we can sin. We can do things that are dishonest. We have. We could do things and we can hurt people in relationships. We can act unloving. We, we, uh, we don't act like Christ. Guess what happens? God sometimes allows the natural consequences of those sins to come after us. And he allows us, as a good father, to experience those. Be careful, right? Because it pursues us. It pursues us. Now, when we think about this, we think about this in light of the Old Testament, that Solomon is writing to a group of people who are given the expressed promise from God in the book of Deuteronomy that if you obey, I will bless the socks off of you. If you disobey, I will remove blessings from you. We as Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic law. There's some principles it's good for us to obey. There is a good, God is pleased with us with, to obey. But for the original audience of the book of Proverbs, they would have read this of literally, if you sin, you could lose your land. The Philistines are going to come in and, 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 and defeat you. The, the Babylonians are knocking at the door. You keep on sinning, God's going to open up the door, right? Really true consequence for them. Now, notice the next thing. It says, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. As believers, it's true. When I'm obedient, though I don't have the promise of physical reward, there is a promise of spiritual reward, right, for obedience. That's good. We would say that the principles of the New Testament, uh, are being honest, showing up on work on time, being a hard worker, uh, uh, trying to show love to everyone, treating everyone as if they're created in the image of God because they are, those types of things are good, and there are some natural benefits that come from that. 
that's a really good thing, and there, there's a reward for that. For the original audience who read this, they literally, if they were righteous, they were rewarded with a lot of stuff. This was an actual promise. So the question is, what does a successful person look like in the New Testament? A successful person is one who is obedient. And when he's obedient, he's prosperous. Now, if we notice in verse 22 through 25, it kind of explains this reality, right, of the adversity that pursues the sinner and the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. And 22 through 25 kind of explains this. So the question is, what what does it mean? What does that mean? So, So notice the prosperity of the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, meaning that through his obedience, he's able to not only provide for himself and for others right then, but he's able to provide something that is sustainable for his children and his grandchildren. I want to say this, um, my, my grandfather just passed, and my grandfather didn't leave us with a lot of land, didn't leave us with a house, didn't leave us with a lot of money. I don't think he was a bad man. I don't, I don't think he was a hard worker. He loved the Lord. And as I think about the inheritance of my grandfather, I realize not all inheritances are worth money at the pawn shop, right? Not all inheritances are worth money in the bank, but they're worth something, Right? The lessons my grandfather taught me are worth a lot. They're, they're invaluable to me, right? I mean, I, mean I, I, I would, there's, how do I put a price on it? Good, godly advice. You can't. It's timeless. It's, it's beautiful, right? It helps me in my life as I go. So just because somebody doesn't have a lot of money to leave to their children or their grandchildren doesn't mean that they don't leave something. All parents and grandparents leave something, right? And you can leave a good inheritance. might not be worth a lot of money in the bank, but it will help them, right, as they navigate through life, which is incredible and important. So that's what a good man does. Notice the wealth of a sinner is stored up for the righteous, meaning that he will lose it. Then notice this next one. It says, abundant food is in the ground of the poor, but is swept away by the by injustice. So the idea is, is that the, the adversity that pursues the sinner, how does he get to that adversity? Well, one of the examples is he goes through injustice and steals something in someone else's land, thus rendering them poor. Then notice the next one, verse 25. He who withholds a rod hates his son. And this next part has become my life verse after having children. But he who loves him dil- disciplines him diligently. I'm diligent. No. Uh, the idea is that, a, that a, a sinner doesn't care about his children. He's only concerned about himself. He doesn't, doesn't care that his children will grow up and live for the Lord. He doesn't, grow, he doesn't live for the Lord. So why would he care that they live for the Lord? He's not going to discipline them. He's not going to deal with them and teach them how to live life correctly. He doesn't even care himself. So why would he care for his children? And then you can see how bad this gets. By the way, we're going to look at an example of this tonight in the book of Judges of what happens when parents fail to teach their children correctly and what happens to the generations after that. That's found in the book of Judges. But notice that, that the, a good father is one who disciplines his son, and it says, and disciplines him diligently. I think it's probably better translated promptly, right? He doesn't let it fester. He, he, he does it when it's a small thing before it gets big. 
So notice, lastly, in verse 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. The question is, why does the righteous have enough to satisfy his appetite? I think there's one single answer. He glories in the Lord Jesus Christ. He glories in God. He has has the Lord. He knows the Lord. What more can I have? We spent some time a couple weeks ago in in Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, we talked about how there were certain things that Paul had in his spiritual resume that kept him from Christ. And because they kept him from Christ, he couldn't gain Christ. And, and even as a believer, there are certain things that you and I can look at. We can glory in our activities and what we do, and that will keep us from Christ. But I'm also convinced that if I am so focused on what I do and all of my spiritual accolades, that I can't even echo the thoughts of the Apostle Paul in chapter 3, let alone chapter 4, when he says, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. Why should I rejoice if I'm doing all the work, right? And then later on, when he then says, I found the secret of living, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't say that if it's dependent on you and on your activity. The only way that you can say it is because of what God is doing in my life and I'm trusting in him is if you are truly trusting on him. And so this idea of contentment must come from this idea that I'm satisfied in God. I'm striving to know God more and more And I'm not putting anything on my flesh. I'm not glorying in my flesh. And if I'm not glorying in my flesh, then guess what? I could be really content because I have Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I've learned the secret of being rich and of being poor. It's through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. Jesus, God, he's content because he knows God. He's content because he's growing in God. However, the fool, since he doesn't know God, his stomach is always in need, and he's always looking for the next thing. This is a snapshot, just a quick snapshot of success. As we can see, success is knowing God, is knowing him and and being satisfied in him. That's what it comes down to. That's what a successful life looks like, being obedient to him. I remember when I was a teenager, one of the elders of the church that I grew up in would constantly talk about climbing the ladder of success. And he said, make sure that when you're climbing the ladder of success, that you're not climbing up the wrong building. And I think we as believers can do that. We can, we can have a definition of success that is wrong. And that definition needs to be found in God and found in his word where we're satisfied in God. Uh, and him and his attributes. Now, at this time, normally we would close in prayer, but what we're going to do is I'm going to have Greg come up, and we're going to uh, partake in the Lord's table. It is going to probably...